Huh? Ask me anything I don't know. That's gonna that's gonna take a while to find something you don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode number eleven and part two of my conversation with freelance session guitarist and Atlanta music scene legend Rick Hinkle. Welcome to Fader Jocks. My name is Brian Stevens, freelance musician and recording studio professional. Each episode, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you grow and develop as an audio engineer, music producer, or recording musician. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's push up those faders. This episode is brought to you by Session Ace and their incredible line of in-ear monitors and other musician-specific products. I've been using the Six Driver Universal Fit ESA in-ear monitors on every single recording session and live gig that I've played on for the last three years. And let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing under $2,000 that sounds as good as these ESAs. Believe me, I've owned everything under $2,000 just about. And the shocking thing about these is these six driver in-ear monitors, you can get them today your own set for less than $400. Unbelievable. So go to SessionAce.com today to check out the ESA in-ear monitors as well as their entire catalog of musical products. That's SessionAce.com, remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. Hey there, friend, and welcome to another episode of Fader Jocks as we wind down 2021. And as I record this, it's December 22nd, the morning of, and warning ahead of time, we're going to get a little after school special action happening today. So uh, if you don't want the feels, <laughs> if you don't want to uh, dig deep, you might want to skip this episode and just go on to something else. <laughs> Listen to Joe Rogan or something. I don't know. Anyway, before we get everything started, I want to make sure to remind you to follow Fader Jocks on social media, especially uh, on Facebook and Instagram, facebook.com slash Fader Jocks and instagram.com slash Fader Jocks. You can follow us there. You can get updates and posts anytime there's a new episode in 2022 my hope is that we're going to take little clips and snippets of things and add that to the feed so it's not just an alert every time you get a new episode but we're going to do some more things with our social media platforms this year and also if you want to support the show you can go over to patreon.com slash brian stevens i've had a lot of fun the last few months on patreon with sharing all kinds of content that doesn't belong uh, on facebook or my youtube channel or instagram in particular for fader jocks bonus content that didn't appear in the episode Usually what you hear is most everything that we've recorded and with every episode I've done here for this year and every episode we'll do going forward, I purposefully am leaving a section where I ask the kind of questions that go outside the scope of what the conversation or the interview is. They're generally very geeky, techy kinds of questions. We get deep in the weeds about gear and plugins and techniques and 
things that might not fit the conversation that you get here on the free podcast. But not only do you get bonus content, you get sample packs. I am in the middle of making a really cool loop package that's all kinds of different drum loops that you can use in your productions that'll be out in January. There's a nine-part mixing series that I just filmed last week that part one comes out today. And through the end of the year, we'll have nine different videos that come out for the Patreon. Those are the kind of cool things that you can get if you get yourself a spot in the clubhouse at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Brian Stevens. And because you're a friend of the show, I'll let you know we're going to do something interesting starting in January with that clubhouse. Uh, I'm trying to consolidate some things and really make this this job of content creation a lot easier for me in terms of organizing this stuff and making it easy for you to get everything that you might want to see. Uh, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag yet, but needless to say... Uh, it's been a fruitful time the last few months over on Patreon, so we're going to take it up another level starting in 22. And, and that's part of what I wanted to start the show talking about, is preparing for 2022. Now, right now, on the 22nd of December, you're preparing for Christmas. I understand that. This is a talk I usually give either on my Facebook Live or sometimes on my YouTube channel. I usually do this right after Thanksgiving, the beginning of December, and give you the entire month. Since we didn't get a chance to do that, I'll give it to you now. Focus on Christmas now, but as soon as Christmas is over, take the next week. You've got a full week at the end of December to begin thinking about what you want 2022 to look like. And I don't know about you, but just in the spirit of transparency, I, I'm really, I'm ready for 2021 to be gone. Completely gone. It, uh, it's been, the last two years have been the most difficult years that I've had, uh, both professionally and, and personally. And 2021 brought some of the, I mean, just in this, again, in the spirit of transparency, just being honest with you, brought some of the, the worst stuff I've ever had to deal with in my personal life. Uh, start off the end of January, just to set you up for what we're going to be talking about here in a second in preparing for the new year. I went into 2021 in January, just guns blazing. Even with COVID being in the middle of that, and still having to deal with all the fallout from it professionally. I really locked in my heels and, and was doubling down in 2021. Well, the, the end of January, uh, I almost lost my older son to addiction. I'll just be honest with you. And over the course of the next couple of months, February and March going into April, uh, I, there were weeks at a time that I sat in ICU, just sitting there with him, just being there. And that can take a lot of your uh, your momentum, not just out of your professional life, but even your personal life. Everything stops when something that traumatic happens. And uh, even though I tried to take a little bit of work with me to do and tried to stay up on work as much as possible, especially in, in February, March, nah, it 
pretty much knocked me off of that pace, knocked me out of that momentum, and really took all those plans that I had for 2021 and just kind of threw them out the window, really. It was a challenge enough to just deal with the paying work that I had to do on top of these pet projects and these content creation projects. So I I don't know where I'm going with that other than to tell you that uh, 2021 was a big learning experience for me. Not only did things not necessarily go right in my personal life in that way, um, you know, there were a few business arrangements and and uh, and work situations that didn't go quite as well not a couple there's one that didn't go as planned you know the whole year didn't go as planned as far as work goes <laughs> because of covid but uh you know there's one work situation in particular one um, partnership of sorts that uh just ran its course didn't really go the way that i had hoped that it would go and you know a lot of time sucked up into that project it really just just kind of didn't go the way it was planned to go but as with anything else with a little bit of time you sit back you look at that and you say what can i learn from this experience so that i can make my next experience better and that's what i do at the last month of every year december for me is that time when i sit down and i look at the first 11 months of the year and i ask what can i learn from what happened and how can I use that going forward into the next year to either right the ship, you know, if we've gone off course a little bit, get it back on course, headed towards whatever the the goal is, wherever the port is that we're trying to land, or how can I be more effective with my time? Are there goals that I had for the, the last year or the last two years that they're just not the kind of goals to hang on to? And in the world that we live in now, where things are changing so fast, there are certain goals that, yeah, definitely, I'm, I've looked at and gone, oh, maybe maybe I got a different goal now. That goal doesn't hold true going into this next year, considering how the world is changing. I'm going to give you four steps that will hopefully help you in this last week of the year to prepare for 2022. Don't wait till January 1st and come out with some kind of crazy long list of resolutions because as the research has taught us, the majority of people don't stick to resolutions. They don't stick to these grandiose plans that they decide, you know, January the 1st is when I'm going to start my new life. No, your new life starts the second you decide to start. And it's a lot easier to make these big sweeping changes that you want to see in much smaller, smaller increments. So I'm going to give you four steps that I'm using and that I think will help you get ready for 2022 and also help you through the course of 2022 with whatever it is that you're deciding to do for this new year. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pick a theme. Think of it as a mantra. For me, because of the last year or two that I've gone through, both professionally and personally, my mantra for the coming year is self-reliance. That's the theme I've picked for 2022. And in that case, I want to make more of my own opportunities. Instead of waiting for the phone to ring, instead of hoping that some kind of thing is going to happen or someone's going to... Here's the real truth. 
So I'm 49, I'll be 50 next month. And one thing I wish I could tell my 25-year-old self is that nobody's coming to save you. Nobody's coming to pluck you from obscurity and put you in that coveted seat of whether it's rock star or uh, um, uh, the guy who's on the cover of, of every music magazine and interviewed by, nobody's coming to, to do any of that stuff for you. We would love for it to be that way. We'd love for someone to come in and just go, hey kid, I think you're super talented. I'd really like to give you a shot. We're gonna, we're gonna give you a shot. In the past, I think that when that might have happened, Usually there was something nefarious happening at the same time, like somebody taking all your money. But uh, it, that really isn't the way that things happen for those of us who have lifelong careers. I'm, you know, as green as I still feel in this industry, I, I look back and I realize I'm not the 23-year-old that moved here. I'm a 49-year-old that for this entire time has been building and growing and cultivating a reasonably successful, even through COVID, successful career as a professional creative in the music business and now in the content creation business. It goes it goes beyond music at this point. It's in it's in all of media that I tend to have different hands and different pies. So while I still feel like I've got so much to learn and so far to go, uh, at 49, going on 50, looking at the precipice of 2022, I've got to acknowledge that I've got 26 plus years of professional experience doing this. And there's a lot that comes with that. And uh, for me, most of my opportunities that I've felt the most satisfied about are the ones that I helped create for myself. Most of the successes when I look back have been when I had an idea and I, I wanted to run with that idea and see how far I could take it. I call it betting on my own horse. And the stretches of time when I've lost the most ground or I've been the most disappointed or things didn't go quite the way that I had hoped they would and, and I hadn't been able to course correct they were generally when I was betting on somebody else's horse. Not that everything that I've started myself has been a complete success, uh, an overwhelming, uh, you know, life-changing success, but I've definitely had less failure in my own projects than in jumping in and helping with other people's projects. Some people might call it sitting at other people's table. Uh, I've had more success when I'm sitting at my own table than sitting at someone else's table. I've had less disappointment. So for me, 2022 is totally and completely about self-reliance and betting on my own horse. I'm, I'm not just doubling down on Brian. I'm tripling. I'm quadrupling down on what Brian's able to accomplish and the ideas that he has, the whiteboard of things that I have yet to accomplish and so for you, pick a theme. It doesn't have to be self-reliance. You don't have to be doubling down. It could be whatever you want it to be. Let that be your guiding mantra. And then when you have that theme that is the overall picture of what you're looking for in 2022, then find a muse. Find some inspiration that will help you get excited about this new direction, excited about this next chapter. 
And for me, I tend to look outside of my industry. I'm not looking at other drummers. I'm not even looking at other guitar players or other singers. I'm looking completely outside my industry. I'm looking at writers and photographers and filmmakers and technologists. I'm looking at people that have nothing to do with the music or the audio industry at all for my inspiration. I'll give you an example of one that I found just in the past few weeks that has been incredibly inspiring for me. So there's a photographer named Peter Andrew, and he does these amazing, I guess they call it macro photography, where you take little items and you photograph them at high detail and uh, blow them up really, really big into these huge pictures that can cover an entire wall, basically. And, And he said something that really inspired me the other day when I was listening to him talk. He was talking about creating your own gallery. Now, what did he mean by that? In his industry, traditionally, you would create your art and then you would take it around to all these galleries and you'd basically ask for people to accept you, to accept your work, to put it on display, to sell it for you, to to turn you into that great artist that everyone reveres. And the thing that he found out in going on his own journey was that he was already the great photographer that he would later have the reputation for being. He was already there. His work was already at that caliber. He didn't need someone to open the door to their gallery and hang his pictures on a wall for him to truly be the artist that he set out to be. He already was that artist. He already was that caliber. And so for him, it was a matter of creating his own gallery. In this case, creating his own gallery for his work online and using the technology to be able to display his art for millions if not billions of people to be able to see and appreciate. He could sell his art on his own. He could display his art. He could make the rounds and promote and market his art without the need for some kind of gatekeeper. And so as he was telling that story, it really got me excited about the possibilities of creating my own galleries for the types of things that I do. And you'll see this over 2022. It started in September of 2021. I started dipping my toes into some things and trying some things and putting some new things out and going to some new corners of the internet to display the kind of work that I do. But you're going to see it in a big way in 2022 uh, with me creating my own galleries, my own places for me to put the things that I do, the work that I do, the art that I create. Uh, I'll put a link to this one particular video that was very inspiring for me. I'll put it in the show notes. If you go over to faderjocks.com, you'll be able to watch that video. So once you find your muse, that really is going to help move you to step three, which is going to be the how and the what. A lot of people start at how and what. So, you know, this next year I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a new album. I'm going to, for me, I'm going to write a book. Uh, I'm going to make a podcast. I'm going to do... A lot of people start at the how and the what 
But we're starting with the theme, we're starting with the mantra, then we're moving to our inspiration, we're finding our muse, and then, only then, do we really start to get into the weeds about the how and the what. And I find that if I start with those things, if I start with the theme, if I move to the muse, and then I get to the how and the what, the how and the what is a lot more specific, it's a lot more exciting, and it also helps me to weed out the things that I don't want to do, the things that are absolutely, hell no, we're not doing that. Uh, it, and it puts me into a spirit of, hell yes, what do I want to really do? Where, where do I want to spend my time? What do I want to spend my time on? And so for me, that's the third part of the process, and it's the one I'm going to talk the least about. It's where you're going to spend probably most of your time is in that how and what. But I don't need to tell you that part. You can figure that part out on your own. And then once you figure out what your how and what is, then it's time to start preparing yourself to share your story. I shared part of my story with you earlier in the podcast. And it's not to get your sympathy. It's not for you to think that I'm super dad because I got through this thing that we're still really kind of going through. Um, It's not to win any accolades. It's to let you know that we all have some kind of struggles that we're having to go through so that when you've got your own struggle, when you've got your own thing that seems impossible to get over, you're not alone. You're not by yourself in whatever that situation is, whatever that suffering is that you may be going through in the moment. That's part of your story. That's part of your journey. And your journey, your experience, and your perspective are what informs your process and your output. You you think about blues guitarists. Why does Albert King sound different from B.B. King, sound different from John Lee Hooker? Blues guitarists sound different not because of the notes that they play. They sound different because of the lives that they've lived. When you hear these great blues artists, whether it's guitar or any other instrument, you're hearing the story of their life in musical form told through the medium of music. But what you're listening to is their story. It's their journey. It's their experience. It's their perspective. And that's what makes each of them unique. So this doesn't just go for musicians. This can be for audio engineers and mix engineers and mastering engineers, live sound engineers. Your process and the output of your process is informed by your journey. It's informed by your experience. It's informed by your perspective. All of those things make up your story. And if you want people to understand how you do what you do, you have to find a way to share your story. Now, you don't have to sit and give people the laundry list of all the bad things that have happened to you, just like you don't have to give them the laundry list of all the wonderful things that have happened to you. You can find a way to tell your story like I did, just telling you a piece of it. You can create a piece of art that helps to express some aspect of your story. You can infuse the feeling of your story 
into that mix that you're doing. I, I do it all the time with drum tracks. I can't tell you how many times I've played on sad songs, played drums to a sad ballad, and by the time I finish that drum track, I'm crying out there in, in the live room behind my drums because I've channeled the emotion of that song. It might not have been the exact same situation that this uh, person I'm recording for uh, is, is singing about, but it's a similar feeling. I pull some other story from my own life that has similar emotional content and I infuse what I play with that experience and that perspective and it's what charges the work it's what gives emotional weight to the work so in moving into 2022 you're going to see a whole lot more of my story you're going to hear about you know me going broke and being on food stamps at 20 years old and having to go back to school for something that uh, had nothing to do with music and over time, over decades, building a career. You're gonna, but I'm not going to sit and tell you this story. I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm going to find ways to infuse that journey and that experience and that perspective into all the work that I show you. So there you go. Four steps to help you to prepare for 2022. I hope you find it helpful and uh, I hope that it helps to set the tone, set the course for you for the next year. And and like what this podcast is transforming into, just going over these four steps with you is helping me to codify those four steps in my process over the next week as I sew up all of the details for what 2022 is going to look like for me and the things that I'm going to be involved in. Going over those four steps and sharing them with you just helps me. Just like you're going to notice today's episode. Uh, today's episode, I'll just tell you, is I'm kind of selfish with this episode this time because if you listen to the last episode, that was an interview with my friend Rick Hinkle that we did 15 years ago. And I hadn't heard that interview in 15 years. So today I'm going to sit down with Rick and we're going to catch up a little bit. I'm going to ask him a few questions about things that we didn't cover before. And we're also going to get into some things that are very pertinent for where he and I are at this moment in our lives. And for me, that's really the turn that this podcast is taking in 2022. I don't just want to uh, do the the whole, here's someone that does something in this industry. How did you start? How did you learn? What was your first big break? What's the biggest thing you ever done? What was your biggest disappointment? I don't really want to just run through all of those signposts and have someone just tick off those different qualifiers. I want to have real conversations with people about real stuff. People that have a journey, that have a very singular experience, and that have an incredible perspective because of the life that they've lived. And that's really where we're going in 2022 with this podcast. And my goal is every other week have a new episode for you where we do that. And before we get to talking to Rick, because I don't want to break up this conversation with a commercial, I'm going to go ahead and take a break and talk about one of our sponsors so that when we come back and I talk with Rick Hinkle, we can just sail right on through. No advertisements, no breaks, just two good friends having a great conversation. So we'll be right back in just a moment. 
If you've followed my content at all the last 10 plus years, you know how much I love and how often I use Waves plugins. In every single mix, you can bet there's a ton of Waves plugins. And more recently, the thing that I've added to my arsenal of tools that I use on every mix is the brand new SSL ED2 channel strip. In fact, if you want to see me mixing with the EV2 channel strip, you can go to briansteves.com YouTube and see an entire 90-minute over-the-shoulder look of me mixing with this plug-in. And on the Patreon, there's four more of those if you want to go check that out briansteves.com slash Patreon. But I digress. Waves plugins are a huge part of my workflow. The sonic quality of these plugins is second to none. So if you'll go right now to baderjocks.com slash waves, you can get the SSL EV2 channel strip for $29.99. And while you're there, you can pick up a ton of other great plugins for not a whole lot of money. Imagine getting an entire SSL console for under $30. You can do it right now at faderjocks.com slash waves. So what you're listening to right now, Rick references in our interview. This is Long-Haired Redneck by Paul Davis. And one of the things I didn't ask Rick about the last time we talked was his work with Paul Davis. Paul Davis is a singer-songwriter from my hometown of Meridian, Mississippi, who uh, through the 70s and the 80s had a bunch of his own hits, amazing albums, a lot of pop southern flair and well past his solo recording has written tons of songs for other country and pop artists through the decades so i just wanted to give you a little piece of this song so that you got some context here's rick hinkle playing a little bit of guitar on long-haired redneck and we'll go right from this right into my chat hope you enjoy me anything i don't know <laughs> okay i can do that um that that's gonna that's gonna take a while to find something you don't know no <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the last conversation we had like this 
was 15 years ago. No. It was. I did the math on it, looking at the yeah. timestamps, and it's crazy to think that that much time has passed. Isn't it? I mean, it's not like we haven't talked since then, but I mean, to sit down and have an actual conversation, and we could have had that conversation last week. That was one reason why I, I really wanted to put it out, because the same things that we talked about then we could talk about now and the answers would be pretty similar but now 15 years later what well, number one there was some things that i didn't ask you about that it blew my mind that i didn't ask you so I want, well, i'm going to ask you about those and then the other thing is uh, i did the math on how old you were and how old i was when we did that and i definitely have some questions so how about we start with the things that I didn't get to before. I can't believe I did not ask you about Paul Davis. Oh, well, sure. What about him? All right. So he was a great guy. So, I love Paul. I miss Paul. Well, <laughs> I cannot uh, believe I didn't get to talk to him again after he moved to Nashville. That was the last time I got to communicate with him because it wasn't that long after that that he had his accident. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't an accident. Someone attacked him. Right. And ever and then after that, there was just no talking to him. Right. And I would talk to other people that were friends with Paul and me both that would say, well, don't take it personally. He won't talk to anybody. So Wow. He just got went out of communication. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it had to do with Paul was such a low-key guy. Mm-hmm. And that was such a traumatic experience. Yeah. I hate that. Oh, I hated it, too. Well, tell me, do you remember how many of his albums that you played on and which albums? I didn't play on a whole lot of stuff. I mean, I was just around in those days. And, uh, oh, this is crazy. I can't remember the name of the album I played on that had long-haired redneck. That's one I remember doing. I remember Chris Etheridge was the bass player. And that was kind of cool because he was not a local guy. That guy's my heart. He's another one of our hometown guys. And I met Chris when I was young, when I was probably 16 or 17. He knew my parents really well. And I think that my mother, my mother owned a travel agency when she was still working. She owned a travel agency for probably 30 years or something. And a lot of his travel, uh, he let my mom take care of that kind of stuff for him. That's part of the way they knew each other. But my parents, my, my dad and Chris knew each other from growing up. And so, Chris, especially when I really got serious about music, Chris was incredibly encouraging. Uh, And every time I saw him, since I moved to Atlanta, when I'd go back to my hometown and I would see Chris either just passing by, you know, at the mall or something like that, or we'd be out somewhere, or usually when I saw him, it would either be at a friend's house or I'd go see him play somewhere, or we'd be somewhere and everybody'd be playing. His first question is, how's your mom and dad? How are they doing? And he was just, but he was always so encouraging. And there are a lot of late nights I sat up with him. He was he was amazing. I didn't realize that you got a chance to work I, on something. I didn't get a chance to really get to know him right. and talk to him a lot. We just played on the session together. Sure. And a lot of other stuff was going on. And, of course, there were other people there that I did know well. So I'd end up talking to them in whatever little bit of off time there was. Right. Uh, the drummer on that session, by the way, was James Stroud. Oh, wow. And that was the first time I'd worked with him. And he was a... Uh, an entertaining fellow. Yeah. He uh, he was a joke teller. Okay. And he always broke the tension. Which is something that you do really, really well, telling jokes. Yeah, well, 
He would do, he would blurt it out in the middle of the session where you'd feel like it was kind of a stuffy situation, and all of a sudden, after he did that, it was no longer stuffy. Okay. So, so how did you originally meet Paul? Uh, well, let's see. I was working for Tom Wright at Melody Studios, and uh, down the street, Chips Moman bought the studio, and it was called American Studios, and Paul was, uh, oh, no, wait. It was after Chip. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Chips was there, but Chips left after just a little while, gave up being in Atlanta. Okay. It wasn't working out for him that well. <clears throat> and sold the studio to Burt Burns' widow, Eileen. Okay, yeah. yeah. And bang Records. Bang Records. And so that was when uh, Eileen got the studio, somehow she, oh, I forget whose who's, who's artist Paul was that he came with the deal. Okay. Oh, he was already on Bang Records working, and so he... Now I'm confused about that. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Um, I can't remember why Paul was there, but Paul was there once Eileen bought the place. Right. And we were up doing Soundalikes a few doors down, and if we got a country album in, uh, you know, we'd gotten to be friends with Paul by that time. Yeah. Uh, we'd get Paul to come down and sing it. Cool. You know, no name, nothing, just whatever Merle Haggard tune or whatever came through there, Paul would sing it. Okay. And sing it very well, I might add. Oh, yeah. You know, because Paul liked country music anyway. Sure. So just getting to know Paul, I would, uh, I was also friends, uh, had gone to college with Ed C., who was the engineer down there at the time. Right. And so between Paul and Ed, I would just end up down there for whatever reason mm -hmm. and ended up playing on some stuff. I was actually going to be on... Uh, 62, was it 62 Love Affair? 65. 65 yeah. Love Affair. Started yeah. out 55. Oh, and, well, too, uh, too far back. Who was it that made him change it? Was it Clive, maybe? Probably. Made him change it, it to like AR 65, decision. make it a little bit newer. I was in the middle of working on that, and my then wife had a traffic accident, and I had to leave. And by the time I got back, they decided, oh, you know, we tried something else. We're not going to put guitar on it. Oh, no. Sort of hated that because that was a hit record. It's a huge hit record. <laughs> yeah. Long-Haired Redneck was one Long of the Long-Haired Redneck was Karma one. Karma Baby was another one. Tell me about that. What do you remember about sessions like that? Um, well, it, rather than assemble the thing and put it together, you know, one instrument at a time, we all played at the same time. Okay. Back in those days. Right. No click, you know, no, just, just right off count the it floor. off and play it. James Stroud counted it up. He'd usually say something like, we making a record? You know, in a country accent. <laughs> yep. Get everybody laughing, and, and then he'd count it off. There were two guitars on that. Kenny Mims was the other guitar player. Like I say, Chris Etheridge was the bass player. Yeah. I don't know if we had piano on that. I'm thinking we didn't have any piano, and they may have added some piano to that. Okay. So what would be the process in working on songs like that? Did... Did Paul bring the song in and, and play it for you first, or did oh, he have I think a demo he just played of stuff? it on an acoustic guitar or something? Showed us how it went, and we just played it. Okay. Did you guys do a lot of takes or something, or did you just whatever came out, and that's what you kept pretty quickly? I don't remember it taking a long time. You know, three or four takes maybe, and then that was it. Yeah. Did you ever have a chance to to play with Paul live at all, other than just doing the records? No. We got knocked out of that. We were Paul's band for a while. It's sort of the beginning of my band, Air Raid, with uh, Ricky Brown, Tommy Walker, me, and Arthur Offen. And uh, 
you know, we rehearsed in uh, Bang Studios, and we, we actually did play at the Great Southeast Music Hall a few times. And then we had this big gig we were going to open for Three Dog Night at the Omni. And there we were. We were down there ready to go. And all of a sudden, there was a stipulation in uh, Three Dog's contract saying that they didn't want an electric band to open. There were actually two opening bands. The second band was T-Rex. They could be electric. Right. But we were the opening opening act and we couldn't be electric so uh, at the last minute paul uh, got the guys from cimarron oh okay. to come and play acoustic guitars you remember that band cimarron vaguely they had a they had a hit um i can remember ring ring telephone ring nobody home baby what you did i can't remember that oh i can't remember the name of that song cimarron they had a couple of hits okay so they played they played that with him before, but you get you were slotted to be the the backing band for Paul. Yeah, we didn't get to do it. At least I ended up at the Omni Hotel and I met Floyd Sneed. Well, there you go. You know, who and, was a hero and, and, yeah, of mine. Yeah, and Three Dog Night at the time was as big as big could be. They were so good. Yeah, they were underrated. They were so good. All of the guys in the band were such good musicians, and and I was very enamored with Floyd. And I can remember, <laughs> I was almost embarrassed to ask him to die. Floyd, uh, do you mind if I ask you, uh, do you practice? He said, practice? Shit. When we play. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> no. No, not at all. None. That was something else that I didn't get to ask you the last time. What was practicing like for you early on? I mean, was practicing just playing, or were there things that you worked on? I mean, for people that practice now. You're talking about just me as yeah, playing just the, you guitar. As a, just playing guitar. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I practiced all the time and uh, just played all the time. I don't know that I had a strict diet of exercises or anything like that. But, yes, I've gone through periods of practicing scales mm -hmm. and uh, trying to apply theory that I'd learned and uh, stuff like that. What about now? Do, do you have a, a diligent kind of practice regimen or you just no, learn by playing no, songs? No, I don't practice at all. But I just recently discovered that that's a mistake because uh, you had to play a gig recently. We had to play Sweet Child of Mine. And uh, it didn't come easy to play that guitar part. Uh, so I remembered how you practice where, you know, you 15 or 20 minutes, you play it over and over, you suck at it, you walk away from it, come back the next day, same thing, you suck at it, you walk away from it. And then all of a sudden, the third or fourth day, you sit down to play it, and boom, you can play it. Yeah, it just falls under your fingers. Yeah, yeah. So I, And then I remember, oh, that's right, that's how practice works. I had forgotten that. So not, not to mention the fact, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, with my situation, having gone through chemotherapy and so forth, I'd right. lost... Uh, feeling in the ends of my fingers really and so for a long time i was just kind of waiting for it to come back mm -hmm. but by going ahead and playing anyway it's uh it made a lot it's uh helping the process quite a bit so rather than just wait for it to get better right go ahead and play yeah yeah so okay. it's the same thing with practice you know Go ahead and practice. Go ahead and practice. I, I I didn't know whether or not I'd be able to ask you about that at all, but that is something that over the last you know, several months, almost the last year, you've been going through cancer treatment stuff. Yeah, and it was really, really hard to play, but I played anyway. I didn't play a lot, and I didn't practice or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't really have the energy to, yeah. but I definitely devoted about uh, – two hours every night after dinner to uh, coming down in the studio and working on something. Right. 
It didn't always involve playing guitar, but at least it involved music. Right. In some way or another. And a lot of days I wouldn't feel like playing guitar too much. I'd play ukulele. Oh, really? It's just easier to you just pick it up and go. Not a lot. Well, of those nylon strings don't hurt your fingers like the metal strings, oh, and so okay. you know the overall weight of the instrument. You know, nothing's as hard to do. Right. And so at least I'd get my fingers on a ukulele and just you know make chord forms and strum it. Right. I noticed that you have done a fair amount of recording of your own stuff over the last year. Well, that's or so what I was too. working on. That's what I would come down and work on every night so you'd have a purpose you'd have a reason to come down and it wouldn't just be well i'm just going to go down you have something oh yeah and i'd already kind of started that project before my cancer diagnosis so i just made it easier to continue rather than to try and start something right so what were the kinds of tunes that you were working on was there an inspiration for the stuff you were doing very much so uh it's not necessarily original music although there are two or three on there that are that I claim yeah. one way or another. I was recreating memories more than anything and uh, taking something that was important to me. Like, for instance, uh, I was self-taught on guitar. I didn't have the money for lessons. Okay. So the first song I ever picked out was the intro to what I say. Do, 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 do. That was the very first thing I picked out on a guitar. So, uh, and also I... Before I even played guitar, I loved Ray Charles. Yeah. And uh, what did I say was a huge hit when I was a kid. So uh, I did an instrumental version of what did I say, which is a combination of recreating the first song I ever learned and also trying to channel Freddie King. And Freddie really is the reason I wanted an electric guitar in the first place. Yeah. I'm still a huge Freddie fan. And Freddie did an instrumental version of what did I say. Didn't really copy his version. I did my own, but tried to channel some of his uh, energy if, if right, I could. Right, right, That was yeah. the influence, the inspiration for, for some of the stuff that was in it. What were some of the other songs that uh, that you dug back and pulled out to do something with? There are so many. Uh, one of them was a song by Don Covey called Mercy, 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 which came out in 1964 and featured, at the time, an unknown Jimi Hendrix on guitar. Ooh. And... Uh, it, was, it wasn't until years later that I read in some, there's a few books that uh, mention that, talk about the fact that that was indeed Jimi Hendrix. Uh, so I recreated that song, and I tried to put a little more Axis Bold as Love Licks in it than he did, because 1964, he hadn't done that yet. Right. So you, you kind of infused it with what was what was going to come up. Yeah, with a, some, some of the Jimi Hendrix uh basic tricks that i've right. tried to learn over the years and use it in other places yeah. tried to inject some of those tricks into the mercy mercy song it's so many there's uh one song i did that i sort of call my own because i don't know where it came from and i call the song electric guitar because when i was 13 i had a 16 year old friend that had an electric guitar he brought it over to my house and he played the first two verses of this sort of rocky surf tune mm -hmm. I'd never heard before. I've never heard since. I don't know where he got it. And uh, but he played the played those two verses, and I said, "Can I try that?" And first time I ever picked up an electric guitar, and I played it right back to him, note for note. And he said, "Okay, well, uh, if you buy an electric guitar, you can join our band." So I did. And I uh, bought a Les Paul Jr. Well, I begged my mom to spring for a Les Paul Jr. for me. And uh, 
joined my first rock and roll band called the Corvells. Oh. If you ever heard of Little Phil, he was the lead singer. Yep. Yep. Very I still keep in touch with him, by the way. Just, really? Yeah. yeah how, how is he? Oh, he's all right. He's just just swimming right along. Yeah, yeah. He'd love to be in a band again if somebody would have him, but you know, now that we're old men. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So the when we did the last interview, I, I did the math on it. You were 54 years old when we did the last one. Oh, to be 54 again. Boy, that's so young. You know, I, I'm 49, and in a couple of months, I'll be 50. So I wasn't much younger then. I wasn't much younger now than you were then. True. Yeah. And I, but I don't, you say that's young. I feel very old at this point. Just wait. <laughs> oh, no. That's not encouraging. <laughs> You'll look back at 50 very fondly. Uh, well, I hope so. I certainly hope so. Not that I would swap. I'm having more fun in my life now than I've ever had. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And my level of appreciation has increased greatly. How so? You know, just playing little nothing throwaway jobs that you couldn't wait for them to be over. I don't look at it like that anymore. I enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. I'm much more appreciative of what I get to do, and every minute I get to play music, it's more precious than it ever was. Oh. So it's it's very enjoyable. That's encouraging. Well, I got to see you play the other night with a bunch of our, our friends. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially seeing you and Jody Worrell on stage together playing. It definitely looked like both of you were having, because he's in his mid-60s, I think. He's a little younger than I am. We look like a comedy team because he's so big and I'm so small. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the pictures definitely look like Laurel and Hardy almost, you know, or (laughs) Mutt and Jeff or one of those, yeah, comedy duos. (laughs) Because, he yeah, he's he's such a big, burly guy and he's super tall. And, you know, Jody and I really connect uh, not only with music, but with comedy. Oh, yeah. Definitely, he's got he's got a very similar sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I think that's why hanging out with him is equally it it, it feels a, a lot like the same thing. Yeah, hanging mm-hmm. out with him or talking with him on the phone or whatever. But it was it was definitely evident how much fun you guys were playing and how much you appreciated each other and what you sort of brought to the table because you both brought very different things to the table at that gig. And and it's kind of funny because I feel like there are very many similarities. In the way he plays and the way I play. Yeah? What in particular? Influences to a great degree. A little bit of difference in the age uh, thing. It just makes a teeny bit of difference. But uh, just the way we approach playing sometimes is very similar. Yeah. Informed by the same things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. I could see that. I can see that. Although, I, you know, as as amazing as uh, Jody can be, I think you. I think you might have him beat on the Hendrix thing. You definitely. You definitely had. Oh, your I don't know. We so <laughs> immersed in the Hendrix thing. Uh, it was. It was great to watch you play fire and a lot of those licks that that people would know. Yeah, from hearing that song, I mean, they were just right there. It's it's like they were just right there in your brain, and they came right out through your fingers. I'm glad they were still there. You go through the pandemic and you go for so long without getting out and playing in front of an audience that uh, a whole lot of those songs you haven't played. And even though you know them like the back of your hand, you don't. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was fun to just see that just come right out, and uh, and it was like it, it was almost effortless watching you play it. Uh, it, and and it was one of those things where what it informed me of is that it's time and repetitions. Time and repetitions mm. are the secret to all of it. And, uh, and that's what when I watch you play, the ease that I see you play with, no matter what style of music it is or, or what song it is, it just keeps telling me time and repetitions will get you to wherever it is. Like wherever I'm trying to get with my playing as a drummer, I feel like I'll get there. I just have to keep putting in the time, the right kind of time, and the repetitions. Well, and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's that's what I that's what I feel like when I watch you play or listen to you play. It's it, I see the time, I see the repetitions. Now, there's one thing at almost 50 years old that um, that I have haven't seen before, and I wanted to ask you about. Up to this point, most of my friendships have always been with musicians that were older. Uh, because most of the people, as I, I was trying to you know, build my own career, most of the people that I met that had a career in music were older than me. Uh, the people that were my my same age when I moved here, I moved here when I was 23. Well, that's one reason they were all older. You were so young. Yeah. And, and so all the people that were my age were either still in music school or just coming out of music school. We were all working other kinds of jobs and not really doing music. So the people that... Uh, that I got to know that were full-time musicians. They were older people. Well, you know, that's something that changed. Uh, when I was 23, they didn't have music schools. They really didn't. Yeah, unless you want to play, like, classical music or something, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you wanted to be, say, an engineer when uh, Ed C. and I went to college together, mm-hmm. and we got out, I said, what you going to do? He said, well, I, said, I think I want to be an engineer. I said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I'm going to go down and see if I can get a job somewhere. And next thing I know, I walked into Master Sound to do something, and there was Ed in the tape duplication room just making copies of cassettes. Yeah. year later, he's head engineer. Wow. So it's, it's, it's almost like an apprenticeship, like mm-hmm. a plumber or something. Mm-hmm. You just learned it on the job. And now you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go mm-hmm. to school for well, it. Well, you've read Jeff Emmerich's book. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. The same kind of deal. He got out of high school, ended up getting a job at EMI. One of the things that I noticed, and they just showed it real quickly, watching that new Beatles thing that's out, is there's a quick little sh- shot in a few spaces of Alan Parsons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's Alan Parsons tape operator or tape duplicator or something like that was the title that was underneath there and and now you know we think about alan parsons and we think of you know one of the one of the engineer producers of the last 40 50 years or whatever especially uh through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and so i could see that you just get a job a young glenn johns was there as well (laughs) it's definitely a different paradigm so the thing that I've noticed in this town is that a lot of the things that are being done that are uh, have got a lot of weight behind them or a lot of energy behind them, a lot of push, are being done by younger people. And so uh, when I say younger, I mean like in their 30s, you know, especially when it comes to the kind of jobs that we're talking about. Where you know you go and you play for two, three, or four hours, and there are a few hundred dollars that are exchanged for the time. It seems like, and so 
I've, I've ex- been experiencing more of an ageism than I ever have before. <laughs> was there a time around that time when you were in your 50s where you started to see any of that? How'd you deal with it? Do you, I don't have you know. Never Everything just kind of worked out because uh, what I wanted to do was pretty much still available to me. Right. You know, by the time I was uh, that age, I was doing some sessions for blues records. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't getting the uh, sessions I used to get for younger stuff, so to speak. Right, right. Uh, so, but that was fine with me. It was sort of what I was into yeah, anyway. It was the music that you liked. It was something that you had an affinity for anyway. And there was enough of it. And it didn't keep me from being able to do, oh, you know, commercial recording stuff, uh, jingles and right. so forth. Right. Mostly jingles. Yeah. So uh, when you were in your early 50s... Did you think about being in your 70s? Was that something that ever crossed your mind? Did you ever think about getting older and what the future would look like? I don't know. At the point I'm in my 50s, I'm still wondering if I'm going to make it to the 70s. Really? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, think about being 20 and, and did you think about ever being 80? I didn't think about being anything past 27. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And when I finally, I think that's part part of what I've dealt with ever since then is I never planned for anything past twenty seven, so every day is a surprise at this point. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of young people go, I I wouldn't want to be any older than eighty. Well, wait till you get to eighty, you might change your mind. Yeah, <laughs> I, I joke with Rosemary that that I want to at least make it to a hundred just so I can <laughs> tell everybody I did. You know, yeah. <laughs> See, I told you I could do it. And then, you know, lay down and go to sleep the next day, and there, there, across the finish, <laughs> the finish line. Of course, then you'd be 100 wanting to know what's next, I guess. Well, for me, uh, as long as I can play the guitar, I'm happy to. I want to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I suppose I'd find something else if it got to where I couldn't play the guitar anymore, but that definitely is one of my favorite things to do. Did you worry at all going through your cancer stuff, whether or not it would take that from you? Or yeah, you, yeah. So it was a real concern. Sure, because you uh, you don't know how long the neuropathy that you get is going to last, and that definitely affects you, not to mention the uh, intense fatigue. But I think all of that stuff ends up being temporary, especially the fatigue. What did the what did the neuropathy feel like? I don't know that I've ever had that feeling. Uh, kind of like... Uh, Kind of like carpal tunnel, but worse. It's uh-huh. uh, it's like the you have no strength and your your feeling isn't really there. It's you got kind of a numb and a tingly feeling mm-hmm. at the same time. So it disconnects you from the instrument. Do you, you it doesn't feel like it's a part of you as much. Maybe harder to execute. Well, you don't feel the strings so much. You know, you mm-hmm. can see your finger going down on it, but you don't feel it so much. Uh, holding on to the pick is harder to do. And, has, and that's come back for you a good bit? Come back a good bit. I'm hoping it comes back even more. Is that, you think that's just reps? Just re- repetition, just doing it more and more, or it'll come back over time? Well, that's sort of what I'm thinking now, because uh, that, was the, that was the epiphany I was mentioning, that I came to the conclusion that it's not enough just to uh, rest and wait to heal. you got to go ahead and use it. And has getting back out and playing... What was that? Ex- the first gig that you went back and played live again. What was that 
feeling like? I barely got through it. Yeah? <laughs> I couldn't wait for it to be over. Really? Because it was, uh, it depends. I mean, it, it, this is a long, boring story, but, you know, when while you're doing chemo, you do it, uh, I was getting it every two weeks, and by day four or five, it was really tough. Yeah. And then a week after that, you're almost back a little bit, and uh, then you have to do it again. Yeah. So one of my gigs came on day five after chemo, and uh, I actually had to take a stool on stage with me and sit down a little bit. Mm. It was a blues festival playing behind Sandra Hall. Right. I called her not long ago. I said, by the way, if you ever need me to play for you again, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Eagle's back. No more stool. Uh, how long did it take you or, or how many gigs do you think before you really started to feel feel yourself again and feel confident about getting through those things, not needing stool, not worrying about the pick flying out. Um, it's just now happening yeah. for me now. And it, it took a good uh, month and a half to two months after I was able to stop yeah. doing chemo. My observation from seeing you come through this and having seen a lot of people come through cancer of different types and different severities is that it seems like you just bounced back like a rubber ball. Oh, no, I didn't at all. It was tough. But uh, the one thing that did remain good was my attitude and my outlook. Is that what? Is that the real key? I think it helped quite a bit, yeah. So were there things that you had to tell yourself or, or ways that you had to work yourself into that good attitude? or there tricks, anything? I don't know what to tell you, Brian. It came easy for me to be able to do that. Really? Just turn it I on. knew it was a good idea, but it somehow came easy for me to do it. I just decided. I don't know that I ever made a conscious decision to do that. It just kind of happened. Wow. It just it was just there for you. Yeah. Sorry, I don't have a better explanation for that. It just. No. Just lucky. Just That's lucky, the answer. I guess. That's the answer. But knowing you as well as I do, that makes complete sense. Because you've always you've always had that thing, that positive thing. Music and comedy and my wife. I'm so happy to be married to Susan. Yeah. So, you know, it's Y'all have something special. You really do. And uh it's been it's been a joy seeing that over the last more than fifteen years. She sort of had to get into the mode of taking care of me for a little while and I it's kind of funny. She'd never made me feel guilty about it at all, and oh. and uh, I was constantly apologizing for her have to for her having to do it. And she kept saying, oh, quit saying that." Yeah, well, I like doing it. I, I I feel so good that you had someone like her to be with you through all of this. Mm-hmm. It uh, it it definitely seems to have made all the difference in the world. Made yeah. Made yeah, a ton of difference. Definitely. Well, I'm, I'm glad and to she see... she sure can cook some fettuccine Alfredo, which became my favorite food during that period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was telling me about that while we were having <laughs> having lunch, that she made a lot of fettuccine Alfredo for yeah. you. <laughs> well, it, it really, it, it's inspiring as, as someone who's coming up through your wake, the, the wake of your life, not your career, your life. It is encouraging to me to see how the two of you guys work together uh, to get through things like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's instructional for me. 
um, it's definitely inspirational as it, Rose and I move through because we've been married the exact same amount of time. You do the same thing. Oh yeah, y'all do the same thing. Yeah, and and it's we uh, we were talking about it coming back from from our holiday. We were talking about just um, being around some some of our old old friends and just how how it just works. You know, there's there's some friends that I know that have been married. Uh, uh, maybe as long as we've been married, some some longer. That uh, once you dig past the surface, they definitely don't have that thing. Yeah, you know, they may have been together a long time. And I just told Rose, I said, I really am appreciative of you because I know, come what may, like we're a team. Yeah, uh, we're lucky. You guys are lucky, and it, our audience, if we have one out there, doesn't know this, but uh, Brian and Rosemary were married. The exact same day and the exact same year that Susan and I were married. And uh, if you're looking to get us an anniversary present, that's uh, February 15th, 1997. That's correct. 97. 97. Yep. So you still got it. You, You got it. Yeah, if you're looking to get us uh, in anything, uh, I'm sure that he would accept Les Pauls. Yeah, I want a Les Paul Jr., maybe a 61 Cherry wood, double cut, yeah. So Susan would like a Les Paul Jr. <laughs> oh, yeah, she wants one, too. <laughs> and I'm looking for a, a, an old Gretsch drum set that's in uh, uh, excellent condition of any sort. If it's three plies, then even better. <laughs> that means it's older. <laughs> Rosemary would like a set of Gretsch drums. We'll that's mention this again if you need to get a paper and uh, pencil. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well... I really appreciate you talking to me. It's um, it, it was great to go back and because li- I haven't listened to that interview since we did it, and going back and doing the math on how long it's been made me appreciate it even more. And getting to talk with you now, especially after what you've gone through the last year, because I don't I don't know if if it's been apparent to you, but what you've gone through the last year has been emotionally very. It's been it's been as serious for me as anything that I've ever gone through myself. There there've been times that we talked on the phone that after I get off the phone with if if there was a reason to be worried, I was incredibly worried. If there was a reason to be happy, like when you told me you called me and and told me that uh, that everything looked really good and that you were going to be cancer free, like I, I I could have jumped over my house. I was so happy. Well, Thank so, you. <laughs> so it's 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 been it's been great getting to um, to go back and look at that and think about all the cool stuff that we've been through up to this point, and then just getting to sit and talk and unpack some of that stuff because I'm I am I'm still I'm looking at what you're going through now at your age and thinking about well if if I watch Hinkel and watch what he goes through and how he goes through it maybe that'll give me some tools. To be able to uh, tackle whatever happens when I get there. Well, that would be nice to know if that's true. So, yeah, good. Yeah, it, it has. It, it's helped me a lot. I appreciate it. And thank you for talking to me. Absolutely. And I hope that that mic sounds really good. We'll have to find out. We'll have to find out. I'm sure it does. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah. We can't get out of here. Everybody that listens to this would know that I had not done my job if I didn't get you to tell a joke. Oh. <laughs> 
Which, if if you want a great thing to watch every day, uh, if you go to Rick's personal uh, Facebook account, every day he puts some kind of joke up from here in the control room, and it's the bright spot of my day. I've got to where I look forward to it now, so that's the first thing that I look for when I get up in the morning. So uh, let's let's have a joke. All right. Well, now this is an old joke okay. because there is no Czechoslovakia anymore. Okay, but. It just sounds good. It's just a good word to say. Okay. So a Czechoslovakian goes to the eye doctor. The doctor says, can you read the bottom line? He says, read it. Hell, I know him. (laughs) Rick Hingle, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be here all week. Yeah. (laughs) Try the veal. (laughs) Not a day longer or a day shorter. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, Sayonara. Sayonara. So that's my talk with guitarist and now solo recording artist Rick Hinkle. I really appreciate it if you've made it this far through the show. Thank you. This episode really is just a love letter to the friendship that I've had with Rick for more than 15 years at this point. He's been an incredible friend, a valuable mentor, and uh, someone that I just I absolutely love. And I just wanted to share this with you. Um, there's a lot of great stuff that you can use, and you, you can see how looking at his journey over the last 15 years is something that's helping me look into the future for my next 15 years and 20 years and 25 years. That's important. As much as our world wants to put a premium and holds a reverence for youth and wants you to believe that nothing good can come of anyone who isn't under 25 years old. I'm here to tell you that so many of the life lessons that I've learned and so much of the wisdom that has been imprinted on me has come from people that are much older than me. And I think for me, it's this kind of conversation that helps me become the next better version of Brian. And I appreciate you for listening. I appreciate your support with the podcast. Uh, And if you want to support the show, if you want to make sure that these episodes get here on time and that we can clear the decks and open the time up for more of this kind of content, you can go over to patreon.com slash Brian Stevens, sign up for a tier in the clubhouse, come hang out with us, download cool stuff, watch cool stuff, listen to cool stuff, get some great mixed templates, all kinds of stuff that we're doing there. It's a great way to support the show and also support our sponsors. Go to brianstevens.com slash waves, go to sessionace.com and patronize those fine companies. Purchase some of their products and by going to those links, you let them know that you heard about them here on the Fader Jocks podcast. That's all I got for you this week. Until next time, I'll see you when I see you in the new year.